You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Dr. Vivek Nurakar is a professor and chair of the Department of Tropical Medicine, Microbiology, and Pharmacology at the University of Hawaii's John A. Burns School of Medicine. He spent time talking with us this morning about the multi-pronged approach to COVID-19 that local researchers are working on. It's everything from antibody and diagnostic tests to vaccines. We wanted to better understand the concept of herd immunity and why it seems so elusive right now. So the herd immunity is a concept which goes back really at least 100 plus years now. So we know what herd immunity is since we have been facing various infectious diseases for the for the past many, many years, many, many decades now. So the herd immunity happens when enough people have developed immunity to a particular infectious disease at the risk of further community transmission is either eliminated or significantly reduced. So this requires a certain percentage of population to have been exposed and infected with the disease. So in this case for COVID-19, so that they develop immunity against it in form of antibodies, and which is the key words, antibodies. These antibodies not only protect a person who has them from reinfection for a certain period of time, they also pre- prevent them from passing along the disease to others. Because their immune systems kill whatever it is that they cause, for example, SARS-CoV-2, when they encounter it again. So, so in one word is that the antibodies are key to developing your immunity. And more the antibodies are circulating uh, in the community among these individual people, it is, we are hopeful that uh, there will be less amount of transmission of the disease. What percentage do we need? So, so that has been heavily debated, okay? Some people say that as low as 50% is good enough. Mostly people agree upon, or most of the researchers agree upon that you need at least 60 to 70% of uh, population already having these antibodies to call it as a herd immunity. Yeah. So right now our, our rate is too low. We are significantly low. You know, we are in, in, in a single digits right now, here at least in the U.S. Now, just by looking at Hawaii per se, we started with the infection rate of approximately 2%, 1.2 to 2%. Within the last one week to 10 days, it has shot high. It went to 6%, 9%, and I believe as of this morning, I heard 11%. In certain communities in Hawaii, it's as, as high as uh, 16, 18 20%, but these are really pockets of this where they are finding clusters. So I think herd immunity differs, but to achieve that kind of herd immunity, we are way, way, way away from that. Without this vaccine, it's going to be very, very difficult to control the spread of this disease. Just by having some herd immunity for some few people or in the group is not going to work. And we are having some success with different types of treatment as we learn more and more about this virus. The death rates are, are not as high as, as what we saw, I think, maybe, let's say, in Italy early on, or, you know, in New York. Right. So I think, I think there, are, there are a few treatments, and, you know, th- this is a totally, completely new disease. So even the physicians and the clinicians who were really at the bedside, they were also learning on the job, if you want to say that. Although, although, although they had experience for, you know, working with treating other similar kind of diseases, but SARS-CoV-2 had a different pattern of clinical symptoms per se. So the really, really sick people, it was very difficult to take care of them and treat them. Many of them succumbed uh, in, in New York City and around the world. 
So, so being a new virus, we have challenges of what are the manifestations of this virus. But now, after almost uh, almost five and a half months now, uh, and uh, we have learned from various other uh, countries, including China, Italy, India, uh, we, we have learned what's happening in there now. And, and hopefully our physicians can, can understand now what to look for and how to treat these patients. How is the University of Hawaii Med School working to increase our capacity for, for testing here? So I think uh, testing is, has, been a, has been the main focus. The initiative of Hawaii here, what we call the Department of Tropical Medicine, Medical Microbiology and Pharmacology at the John Avon School of Medicine here at the University of Hawaii, is fully engaged in working on COVID-19, various aspects of COVID-19, vaccines, drugs, diagnostics, specifically testing. So... In month of March, we started working on this project, having a clear lab, a clear certified lab here, uh, and we established a lab from ground up. We are we are almost there. We have received some funding from city and county of Honolulu through the mayor, and thanks and thank you, uh, great Mahalo to mayor, to mayor for giving us that funding. So hopefully, we plan to have some of the testing for coronavirus. We call it the SARS coronavirus two testing. Uh, hopefully by somewhere between September 15th, right after September 15th. And this would increase our capacity, our lab capacity here in the islands? Correct. It will not only increase, but we'll also have a surge capacity in here too. So, you know, so if there's the cases coming in, we can really ramp up quickly. But I think with other commercial labs and even the hospital lab or the state lab, we'll have another place where we can do testing in here. Okay, because I know initially our results were having to be sent to the mainland and we were having a lag. Correct. And and that was the problem at that time. And now also that was the problem in between if you heard some of the labs locally did not have the reagents because there was a really a short supply and they had to cut down on the number of tests done here in, in Honolulu. So to avoid that kind of situations we are having we are having diversifying the technologies so not everybody is using the same technique or technology. That way, if there is an issue with the supply chain, then probably we can easily handle that. We did talk to the commissioner of the FDA last week, and he gave the green light for the saliva testing. There is you know, an effort right now, uh, I believe with Oceanit, uh, that is using artificial intelligence to help diagnose COVID cases quickly so that you know, we don't have that lag time. We are working very closely hand in hand with Oceanet. Our, our Department of Tropical Medicine is doing that. Our faculty are very much engaged in the technology. I personally have been working with them uh, for the past couple of weeks now. So yes, saliva technology is one of the technologies which is very much needed. Currently, we are in our capacity trying to develop a saliva technology also which is which is available outside, but we need to make sure that we can use it in our laboratory. Each laboratory has to have its own test. So we are trying to adapt some of the saliva technology. It is a, it is an easy, non-invasive form of uh, of getting getting saliva basically. And getting a nasopharyngeal swab is is a, is a bit uh, bit cumbersome as well as uh, some people say it hurts. But giving saliva might be might be much more easier, uh, and testing that saliva for for COVID nineteen or SARS coronavirus two uh, will be much simpler. We'll be using the same technology, by the way. Uh, the Oceanet is trying to use a different technology and hoping that it will be much more faster too. Well, I have had that 
nasal test, and it is uncomfortable. So I think that if we can come up with a test that is less uncomfortable and cheaper and we can get the results quicker, I think, yes, that's going to help us all. Yeah, I I think the best way to do that is to see if we can come up with this technology, which we are trying to develop too, to do a home collection, you know, so we don't have to have a person uh, coming to a clinic or 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 a hospital. Uh, but if you just send them a, a tube, uh, they can collect their saliva and put it back in a thing and send it out. And or somebody can pick it up or they can drop it off. So that way it's much easier. Now, you study lots of viruses. What is it about this virus that challenges you and, and you know, fascinates you? Just, you know, it is the first it, time that we've seen something like this. Right. It is it is first time that we have seen something like this, but it is it is not something which which is unheard of because uh, some 20 years ago, we also saw 17, 20 years ago, we also saw SARS-CoV-1, what, which was there. Of course, it was not as infectious as what we are seeing in here. Uh, so so I think this, this particular virus has really uh, taken the place of flu, which we get during the during the uh, cold seasons in here. And this is occurring now. There was the initial thinking that okay, you know, this might be only occurring occurring in the countries where there are where there is a warm you know a warm temperature per se. But that's not true either. We see this thing throughout the world right now. So this has this is being a brand new virus, what we call, um, and it has evolved. So I think to hand get a handle on this virus is going to take some time. And again, I come back to this. There are two things. You know, you had to generate those antibodies in the, in your in your uh, body as well as to have a vaccine at the same time. Okay, yeah, so it's both. Anything else that you think would be important to underscore for our listeners to understand this? It's very important to understand that uh, these kind of rash things which people try to do, as I heard and seen some things happening on the mainland where you know, people throw out big parties, hoping that everybody in the party will get infected. Uh, these are almost uh, people, who, people who are very young that should not occur, you know. We we cannot uh, we cannot allow that those kind of things to happen. That's dangerous. You're going to infect yourself, but then when you go outside, you're going to start infecting others, especially the most vulnerable ones uh, in, your, in your household, the kapunas, as well as uh, as well as the uh, the more who are on the disabled side or have some uh, underlying elements. So I think people had to be very careful in doing these kinds of rash and think that we can get a herd immunity by just throwing some party of 50 people in one small room. Very That's dangerous. That's not to work. So I think, I think the other thing is that as we all have been telling and probably I'm repeating in here, but it's important that we do follow the uh, social distancing criteria as well as wear, wear your mask, uh, have your hygiene, have, wash your hands. I think we need to take care of each other. I can only tell quickly that uh, at the initiative of Hawaii in here, uh, one of the solutions is the vaccines. And we have groups of people who are uh, very much uh, into it right now. And they have had some very good data. We are hoping that some of our vaccine-related data will be coming out pretty soon. Uh, and that can be used uh, because there's not only one kind of a vaccine. You can have various different vaccine platforms. And some vaccines can complement other vaccines too. So that's one area which we want to really, really focus on here, here uh, at, the, at the medical school. But other other areas are also important, which are uh, which are working in the community. As you can see now, uh, there are 30 percent, approximately 30 percent of the Pacific Islanders here 
in Hawaii are infected. But the total population of Pacific Islanders here in Hawaii is only 4 to 5 percent. So there's a huge disparity between why these Pacific Islanders are getting that much infected. So we need to understand uh, what are the barriers uh, to testing or what are the barriers for these people to come in there. Of course, there are various different languages uh, which have been spoken in specific. So these, these people may not know what we are speaking here in English. And we need to make sure that we can translate that and, and hopefully that way we can take care of these people. So there are various aspects of this disease which fascinate people. You know, I talked about antibody, I talked about vaccines, I talked about diagnostics, but there's another whole human facet to that. Is how are you actually going to get it into the community which has been affected, which is highly disproportionately affected? So I think that is something which our department as well as the university is very much working on. And the second part of it, you know, you can do testing, but you need to also have contact tracing. And again, the university is very much working on with the Department of Health to hoping that we can increase the contact tracing here too. We have a very small population of Pacific Islanders in general, mm -hmm. uh, whether they're Chukis or or, yes. or others, but uh, the rates of infection among them are over are very 30%. Yeah, that yeah. is unacceptable. We had to do something for that to see how can we really get into these communities and work with these people one-on-one. -on -one. You need these translators in there too. They're very difficult to find. So I urge the, these communities to have some of the people come out in here and do the translations of that from English to uh, their language. So I think that it becomes important that the message is very clear. That was Dr. Vivek Nurkar, Chief of Tropical Medicine, Microbiology, and Pharmacology at the UH Johnny Burns School of Medicine, talking about the efforts underway to tackle COVID-19. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, committed to the community's health with a temporary museum closure and offering digital experiences at honolulumuseum.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Dr. Laura Conover, author of The Earth Prescription. Next time on New Dimensions, I'm going to be talking about using the healing power of nature to improve your health through grounding. Starting Sunday morning at 11. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for our Backyard Quiz. For today's quiz, we are looking at a familiar perennial that blooms all over the state, from popular hiking trails to your very own backyard. Originally native to South Africa, this plant has sometimes been mistakenly called the banana tree because its leaves closely resemble the banana plant. 
We most often see two versions of this plant, the smaller, more common orange bird of paradise, recognizable for its crane-like flower head bursting with vivid hues of orange and violet blue. There's also the white bird of paradise, alternately called the giant bird of paradise, due to its ability to grow up to 30 feet tall with a spread of six to 10 feet. For today's quiz, we wanna know the name of the American painter who captured this iconic plant on canvas while touring in the islands in 1939. Here's a hint, the painting of the white bird of paradise was recently exhibited at the New York Botanical Garden in 2018. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. If you know the answer, the first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii. Updated property listings, including virtual tours and a mobile app, at locationshawaii.com. The governor granted the University of Hawaii system an exemption from the two-week shutdown that officially started today because the academic year began this past Monday. The COVID-19 crisis is expected to impact the bottom line for the university. HPR's Noe Tanigawa joins us this morning to talk about the call for a short-term emergency plan to deal with this crisis. Good morning, Noe. Hey, good morning, Catherine. Uh, you and I both know that there's been a bit of an uproar there on the UH Manoa campus for Maybe the last couple of months, um, what happened was um, part, what happened was at the July Board of Regents meeting, Chair there Ben Kudo proposed a resolution calling on the UH president to draft a plan for how the UH system would cope with a dramatic loss of funds, uh, which of course we expect because of the pandemic. Mr. Kudo said the board is using UH projections of a 91 point. $7 million drop in revenue. That's for fiscal year 2021, with effects possibly starting in November. Now, the call for a plan, um, you know, of those dimensions sent shockwaves through the university community, but Chair Kudo contends the wake-up call is warranted. There were several reasons for the resolution to be acted upon by the Board of Regents. The first was to convey to the university community and our stakeholders a sense of urgency with regard to what we were facing, that is the pandemic and its economic and operational impact upon the university. Also, the gravity and significance of that impact. The powers or the management measures that are mentioned as possibilities are all within the management toolbox of the administration already. We did not grant them any additional authority to deal with the emergency. We did not at all relinquish our oversight and decision-making on whatever decisions and recommendations come back to us. We know that because of the types of measures that we potentially might be taking, the vision of what our university will be 10 years from now is going to be different than what it is today. You know, there'll be some similarities, but they won't be the same. 
uh, it can't be because of the magnitude of the cuts that we're looking at. University of Hawaii Board of Regents Chair Ben Kudo there. You know, you know uh, no, I remember uh, there was a pic- the, the petition that was circulating, and there were hundreds of signatures on that. Over 800, right, uh, you know, faculty and students as well. Um, what happened was uh, this, <laughs> the, an adapted, okay, what happened was this request for a plan from President Lesnar came on the heels of some other reorganizations that actually went into effect earlier in the summer. Um, It so happens um, that this brand new College of Arts, Languages, and Letters, it's the call, combines 17 departments and about 300 permanent faculty. And this is disciplines ranging from the arts languages and literature all the way to Pacific and Asian studies. Don't be looking for the School of Pacific and Asian Studies anymore. It doesn't exist. Uh, Call is now the largest college at UH. 2,300 majors in that. And that reorganization now was discussed over several years, and faculty members who do not necessarily oppose the change still feel that their points along the way were not heard. Shankar, is chair of the English department. He put it this way. The part which I think the public of Hawaii and listeners of HBR should really be aware of is the degradation of a kind of a liberal arts, humanities, values, education, which is going to happen in a very serious, but maybe not immediately visible way through these reorganizations. Part of what I'm really resisting here is this us or them kind of narrative. I value my colleagues, but what engineering does, what the medical school does in relationship to society cannot be left in the hands of engineers and doctors. And that's where the values education comes. There is a value to values education. The vision that the president has put forward is an understanding of the university simply as an institution to create people for the workforce. Mm. Shankar is chair of the English department. He says, um, you know, workforce training and supporting key disciplines is fine, but he contends that humanities provide values education, which is, he says, foundational. Um, Tamil Dean, chair of linguistics, um, cites that it's what's called the UH Vision for a New Innovation Ecosystem. It's a long-range plan that came out in March this year as evidence that there is a shift away from humanities and values education going on. The evidence that we have for that is that there was a long-term plan published by the university, and in that long-term plan, they describe the following disciplines as being the core of the university. The med school, Scheidler Business School, astronomy and oceanography. Everything else was not even mentioned in that long-term plan. And there's been opposition to that for a very long time, but under the guise of this fiscal emergency, it can be pushed through. People within Hawaii, they don't know this, but the University of Hawaii has an absolutely stellar reputation around the world for its liberal arts education. But the upper administration is really interested in those disciplines that will raise external funds. We think you need to produce people that are well-educated, well-rounded, able to do critical thinking in order to have a really vibrant democracy. That's the goal of this university. 
Professor Kamaldeen and Professor Shankar both support training for well-paying jobs. And they and many other scholars and students as well also say there's a social and economic cost to not doing more than that, more than that training for jobs. And they say that great universities have always been about more than workforce training. Well, Catherine, does that sound like something we can care about right now? Well, you know, <laughs> I, I I know I had heard talk that they were going to, you know, uh, fold the uh, Department of Architecture back into engineering where it was many moons ago, uh-huh. and, and there was a lot of back and forth on that, and I don't think that happened. Uh, but, yeah, lots of angst and, you know, back and forth, but, you know, I, I can uh, certainly see, you know, where these uh, department chairs are, are coming from. Right. It's it's really something that we can ask ourselves as a community because, I mean, you know, the, the, the university really does direct our intellectual life here in a way, right? I mean, professors, assistant professors, associate professors, lecturers, departmental staff, all those grad assistants, lab assistants, all the facilities, people, ground people, you know, groundskeepers, the guards, that's about 10,000 employees. And there are 10 campuses uh, across these islands, and they're really the hubs of communities. You know, what's kind of amazing, too, is that in fiscal uh, 2020, the university attracted $456 million in outside funding from nonprofits, from industries, and the federal government. Now, the question they're going to be looking at is, can the university afford programs that do not attract big dollars? Some say no. Others say, if we don't have those programs, what are we building? Yeah, now we have these uh, stay-at-home orders. So, uh, yeah, it's it, it's a challenge, you know, just to keep the system going, right? <laughs> right, just to keep day-to-day. And as you pointed out early on, you know, um, UH did get a bit of an exemption from the stay-at-home orders this time around. Experience gained. The workspaces have been adjusted. So the science labs, shops for career and technical education, the studios for arts and clinical training facilities are all open. Uh, and they've got protocols in place. For everything, including when a positive case happens. I mean, it really looks like there's a commitment from all parties to preserve a vibrant university. And Regents Chair Kubo reminds us that there are some really hard decisions ahead. Yeah, well, we hope we hear uh, more from uh, President uh, David Lassner about this and uh, uh, see, have, to see, have to see how things go. But thanks so much, Noe. Hey, thank you, Catherine. Thank you so much. That was HPR's Noe Tanagawa with a snapshot at the University of Hawaii as it deals with this health and economic crisis. Our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat focuses on the difficulty that the state auditor is having getting information from the health department. Reporter Stuart Yurton joins us this morning. Hi, Stuart. Hello, Catherine. So this uh, this story really caught my eye because I know uh, the auditor, uh, Les Condo, did two prior audits on the infectious disease division there at DOH. Um, so I was really kind of curious as to how he was looking at, you know, what was coming down. 
so talk about this uh, report that he issued. Right. Well, the report is fairly uh, incomplete, mainly because the department didn't really provide a lot of information in response to what the auditor wanted. The auditor, excuse me. And this was a request by lawmakers, right, to find out what was going on? Well, this was self-initiated by the auditor, but then the Senate came back and asked for more information as well. Okay, and they didn't get it, right? Well, that's right. <laughs> Nobody got it. And so uh, what did Les Condo have to say as to, you know, what were the roadblocks? What was going on there? Well, basically, they just weren't allowed to talk to people. Uh, the key people, such as the state epidemiologist Sarah Park, uh, was unavailable. And the Department of Health director didn't provide answers to questions that the auditor wanted. He did get a chance to talk to Bruce Anderson, the health director, right? It sounds like a lot of the information and a lot of the questions that the auditor wanted just answers to just they weren't able to get. So that's really the key takeaway from this. And uh, so uh, as far as, uh, uh, you know, what happens now, I mean, so he's issued this report. Um, you know, there's more pressure, I think, on the on the DOH to produce something, you know. Uh, what do they have to say? Well, initially they didn't have anything to say. As of, to, as of yesterday, they didn't really have time to read the report and didn't have a response. What we can say is this. The House uh, Speaker, Scott Psyche, has asked for information. Uh, that was on August 6th. We're still waiting. The expectation is something will be coming from the Department of Health soon. We just don't know when. And there's also a U.S. congresswoman from California who's been asking for information as well. So that response is supposed to be happening on the 28th, uh, which would be tomorrow. Uh, we're not sure if that's going to come before Speaker Psyche's request or not. So and that's where we are. We're just waiting for information. <laughs> and I know, you know, watching the uh, uh, Senate uh, COVID committee hearings. I know there are repeated requests to, to get numbers out of Sarah Park, uh, and she didn't have them at the time. And, and uh, I had circled back uh, with uh, Chair Donovan Delacruz, and he had said, you know, at the time that they didn't get those yet. Right. We're still waiting for a lot of numbers. Uh, they've been providing numbers on new hires. Uh, they are seeming to be ramping up the contact tracing capacity. But there are a lot of numbers that we really want to find out, and in the media we want to find out, and lawmakers want to find out, such as how long it really takes to close a case. How long does it take to track everybody down? Uh, there are other questions that are out there, too, such as what happens if somebody doesn't comply with a stay-at-home order when they've had contact with someone? There are just so many questions that we just don't have answers to, and the politicians have asked, lawmakers have asked, and the information's just not there. Now the auditor has stepped in and can't get the information either. Well, yeah, he's got like a, this report is like 26 pages long. I found it really uh, enlightening, you know, to, uh, to 
basically understand, you know, what were the priorities that the health officials set up uh, as far as the contract tracing program? Because it, it seemed a bit of a mystery why they were, uh, you know, pushing away offers of help when they had that, you know, over many months. Right. That still is unanswered. As you recall, back in early May, uh, people were going to the Department of Health, offering help, offering additional contact tracers. Of course, at that time, we had almost no cases. So the question was, do we hire a lot of people and build something uh, that's not needed at the time? Or do we wait until there's a surge? Uh, so the state health department decided on the latter, and it didn't seem to work. Yeah, well, we'll have to see then what kind of response we get from the uh, Department of Health, uh, whether they'll be forthcoming with all this information that uh, not only lawmakers want, but the auditor wants, and the media, too. <laughs> exactly. Th thanks so much, Stuart. Thank you. That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. To read the full story and the auditor's report, head to uh, civilbeat.org. You know, earlier this week, we spoke with an Oahu realtor about home renovations and the state of the real estate market. And we received this call from a Big Island realtor. Hi there. This is Molly Harris from the Big Island. I am a realtor with Vincent Sotheby's Realty, and I just heard a Keller Williams agent in Oahu give a synopsis of his take on the real estate market. But it's super one-sided to what is happening in Oahu. And as one of the outer, sometimes forgotten islands, we are seeing a completely different outlook on the market. Uh, we have incredible activity, especially in the high-end market, with multi-million dollar sight-unseen purchases from mainland buyers who are hoping to eventually escape over here with their families and ride out COVID. Uh, we are seeing a lot of additional inventory coming on the market in the resort areas of the Kohala Coast because, of course, if tourists can't get here, uh, they're not buying a lot of those properties, and they are rentals primarily. But in certain markets, Kona and Waimea, especially near uh, Parker School and Hawaii Preparatory Academy, we have people fleeing the mainland to be somewhere safe, big open spaces, lots of value to their real estate purchases, and joining a great community. And hopefully we attract some great people out here who will add to our community. And we also heard from another Big Island listener on community coverage. Hello, this is Carl from Kapoho. I just heard this trailer discussing someone who was on unemployment, their unemployment ran out, and now they come home and she says, oh, I found an eviction notice on my door. But what about all the people that never got unemployment? What about all the people that got no help at all except for the 1,200 three months, four months ago? We're invisible. Nobody even mentions it. They only speak about, oh, we need to get unemployment people help. I don't understand. Are you blind or you just don't care? Thank you very much from the thousands of people 
who are invisible. Okay, we heard you. Thanks for the feedback. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Reach out via social media on Facebook or Twitter, or you can call our our talkback line at 792-8217. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the executive MBA, scheidler.hawaii.edu. Tune in to HPR One Saturday night as we conclude our limited series of Hawaii Public Radio presents Blue Note Virtually Live, performances from the Blue Note Hawaii stage. This week it's an encore performance by Tavana, a one-man band known for his soulful, island-inspired rock and blues sound. Plus, host Marco Olivari chats with Tavana backstage. That's Saturday at 6 p.m. Tune in to HPR One or listen on your smart speaker. Earlier in the show, we told you about one of our favorite perennials, the bird of paradise. The smaller orange variety with violet-blue accents is also called the crane flower. There's also the white bird of paradise, Aka, the, uh, a.k.a. the giant bird of paradise, due to the fact that this plant needs a lot more space to grow, reaching heights of 30 feet and spreading out to widths of 6 to 10 feet. In 1939, a well-known American artist captured the white variety on campus, a cam- canvas, I should say. And as the story goes, a New York ad firm offered Georgia O'Keeffe an all-expense-paid trip to the territory of Hawaii. In return, all she had to do was produce two paintings for a pineapple juice campaign. Throughout her nine-week stay, O'Keeffe was constantly showered with gifts of lei and flowers, uh, which inspired many of her sketches and paintings. But, you know, she didn't produce a single picture of pineapple causing a lot of heartache and panic for the Dole advertising executives. It was only after much prodding that she finally put them out of their misery by painting a budding pineapple. Uh, We got lots of calls on this question, but congratulations to Noelle from Liliha. You got it right. You got it first. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one that you'd like to share, write to talk back at (laughs) hawaiipublicradio.org. Did you know that on a global average, 20% of uh, water resources uh, go to industrial uses first rather than to families and communities for everyday use? In the U.S., that rate is even higher at 40%. With more families indoors during the pandemic, everyday residential water usage has increased, causing critics of corporate water usage to ask, how can we make the most of the water that we have? According to conservationist John Grizz of Nine Power Clean Water, the answer isn't in more regulation for industry, but instead in incentivizing industry to act as better stewards uh, for most of our precious resource. He spoke with the conversation's Harrison Patino on this issue. Now, the thing that's interesting is that industry is supposed to serve society, not the other way around. But industry has people that are paid to ensure their interest. And the rest of us are kind of cobbled together grassroots folks. Now, we need industry and they need the water. But what we need to do is help industry do a better job of recycling what they're already using instead of fresh water dispose, fresh water dispose. Because that would leave more water for the rest of us. So that's kind of our basic premise. 
you know, our look at this topic. Now, with 40% of that water going to corporate and industrial use, what becomes of that water? Well, it, you know, quite often it's used in manufacturing or it's the result of, you know, use of mining or oil and gas production, all things that make modern society run. So, you know, this is sort of the problem with people being against the oil and gas industry. You know, without the oil and gas industry, our society wouldn't be here. Now, we probably wouldn't have 7 billion people on the planet either because we couldn't feed them. They would have died of disease. They wouldn't have had the right shelter. I mean, our tradition over the last two years, our our exploitation over the last 200 years of oil and gas products, hydrocarbons, has really allowed modern society to flourish. But as with everything else, as with a bunch of kids with a case of beer on a Saturday night, the reckoning comes the next day. And so now what we have is sort of industry first, and we do regulate them, but it definitely is industry first because that's the economic engine, right? Can't straddle the economic engine. Instead of just throwing regulations at them, I think there's a new way, a better way of dealing with with industry and its impact on the planet, and that's in showing them how they can save money. Because there's a lot of inefficiencies about the reuse or use of natural resources, whether it's air, water, soil, right? The three big things that we need to sustain human life on the planet and all the other life that we benefit from. Now, I think when you say there that criticism for the oil and uh, natural gas industries, industries like that, I think it's less blind criticism towards the industry as a whole, but more a criticism for not having a more responsible stewardship of the resources that they consume. Yeah, I think that's, that's true. And, you know, unfortunately, we've kind of trapped all of industry, into follow the regulation. This idea that came about 30 or 40, maybe 50 years ago, that companies exist to increase shareholder value, and the only shareholder value they can count is money, is kind of old-fashioned. Industry exists to increase shareholder value can also mean quality of life or the way that they spend money, or the way they use resources. Because, you know, we're obviously more interconnected now than ever before, but it's not just electrons over wires that we call the Internet. It's the fact that our weather is more connected, you know, now. Climate is. You can see the spread of viruses very fast because of air transportation. All this stuff needs to be taken as a whole. And, you know, I, I know we need strict regulations so that industry knows when they cross the line. But there are ways that we can incentivize industry to use the resources they have access to better and to help give back to the community they're in. Well, without getting too much into the weeds here over the issue of corporate responsibility, more locally in Hawaii, do you have a sense of the more significant industrial entities that have a stake in Hawaii's freshwater reserves? I do realize that the sort of traditional views on the land need to be fully embraced because that leads one into a very conscious conservation-wise approach to using resources. Instead of slash and burn and exploit, it needs to be, you know, especially given the small, relatively small land mass that is Hawaii and the large number of people there, the impact of just humans being there is enormous. So there needs to be a nice balance between what's going on with humans and what's going on with industry. Well, in particular here, Mahi Pono has been uh, under a lot of scrutiny locally here for their use of water, especially in Maui County. This is something that I was kind of amazed at. I kind of thought that agribusiness greatly outweighed in terms of food production, small traditional farming families. They don't. It's these collections, these almost like co-ops that really dominate the farming scene. 
And so, you know, individual farmers are getting dragged into policies that they don't agree with because the co-op is doing that. You bring up this idea that we need to rethink how industrial purposes and corporations act as stewards over the water, but a lot of corporate entities have not acted as great stewards. So this idea of having people build up trust towards them with more of a conservation-minded approach, that seems like something of an uphill battle. Yeah, it is until you start buying shares in their company, until you start electing people to their board of directors that care about these issues, until we incentivize the companies to do what's right. And this is not just tax deductions. There are other ways, you know, where it's sort of the, the idea of carbon credits, but you do it in eco-credits where you acknowledge that, you know, in this one facility, the company doesn't have the money to invest in more modern machinery. We're going to have a higher impact. And it's balanced out by having a lighter footprint at the mine factory location 10 miles down the road. That kind of thing needs to be taken into account. Eventually, I mean, if you look at the last couple hundred years and what we've gone through from a helter-skelter, industrial revolution, no environmental safeguards whatsoever, to what we have now, we've made an incredible amount of progress. And this gives me hope. We have gotten really better, and we can get even better. Green is not a destination. It's a process. So going green is more of a journey. So, again, I think it's possible to incentivize companies to do better, but we've got to stop marking progress of a company or a company's value based on their share price alone. And that is a fundamental change. So instead of saying, well, we're going to take on big industry, why don't we take on how big industry operates and why they operate that way? Now, John, as you talk about stock prices here and the value of shares, it's interesting because I think a lot of the reason that people are trepidatious to accept corporations or industries as responsible safeguards with water is because they fundamentally view water as a commodity. And I think that really clashes with the idea that many people have that water is a basic human right. I mean, where do you think along those lines? Well, I definitely believe in the latter as well. I think, though, that, you know, here's the problem with water. You know, people expect it to be free second concept is the fact that we're in a closed loop here. The amount of water really hasn't changed over millions of years. It's just in a different place or a different form. I think a bigger problem we've got is that America is essentially, you know, a 16-year-old with a credit card and a fast car. And there is no long-term future. Our federal budget is not even an annual budget anymore. It's a series of bills that gets us kicks a can six months down the road. So how do you have an environmental policy or how do you maintain an energy policy, or a uh, natural resource policy that goes outside just regulations on quality. I mean, that was the issue with Maui and the Supreme Court back in April. You know, they had one interpretation of the Clean Water Act, and the Supreme Court said, well, actually, you're going to have to look at both the Clean Water Act and also the impact on groundwater. can't just use one over the other. You're going to have to take into account the fact that this is all one big interconnected system and that the water you're dumping down disposal wells eventually ends up in the ocean, and therefore it you know, is violating the Clean Water Act. You've got to have a permit to do that. And the permitting process itself ensures you know, some basic safeguards are put in place. Well, I'm glad you bring up that local instance here. There's this notion that water is fundamentally sacred to the residents, especially farmers. So this disproportionate industrial water usage, it really seems to run counter to that belief of water is something sacred. And I know you're saying that, you know, water is a fundamental human right, but we have to address the commodification of it in some way. Here locally, though, those two notions run pretty counter to each other. I'm not sure, you know, how those two different positions are going to juxtapose themselves when, when what you're talking about is, from an economic standpoint, considered to be a commodity. How do you 
instilled emotion into the price or the access to a commodity. Very difficult to rectify that. I'm not pretending I have an answer there, but I do know that large groups of people working together can get things done, whether that's against the sugarcane factory down the street or some big agribusiness down the road. So swinging big picture here, what do you identify some of the biggest challenges towards changing our global perception of water conservation and how we can do a better job at it? There's a bunch of moving parts here. One is that uh, the changing climate that's brought on by industrialization is putting the water in different places and in some cases making the water not usable for a particular use. So you're not going to change moving water. Water's so cheap. You know, it's the, the plane full of water is a plane full of diamonds equation. You can't afford to fly water somewhere, but you can sure afford to fly a bunch of diamonds somewhere. And it's because it is somewhat ubiquitous. But I think there's a real struggle now to match the resource quality and availability with the economic activity. That's where I think you're going to see some necessary changes happen. But if there's just not water in a certain place, then you cannot farm there. And we need to help you move or help you adjust to a a new economic reality. And that water is not going to come back unless we spend a ton of money to move water, put an infrastructure to move water. So I think, you know, it's matching up maybe the reality of the resource with the economic activity there. That's one thing, you know, we need to consider doesn't mean we have to forcibly move people, but it does mean that you've got to do things in a place that makes sense. You know, people rail about manufacturing jobs going overseas. The U.S. is no different than any other developing country. This always happens in a developing economy where the lower-skilled, lower-wage positions go somewhere else if you've got access to it because people's quality of life went up. So, you know, it's hard for me to to figure out somebody railing against the, you know, low-wage jobs going to China when these people have higher wage jobs here. And if they don't, we better figure out how to get them into those positions. You know, and whether that's education or whether that's sort of changing societal norms, that's the actual reality on the ground. You've been listening to conservationist John Grizz of Nine Power Clean Water talking with the conversation's Harrison Patino about corporate water usage and how American industries can better manage the resources they consume. Well, we've run out of time. Tomorrow, it's a call-in show. Dr. Kathy Kozak will join us. We'll be highlighting some of the local research around COVID-19. Got some questions you may want to post to our guests or comments? Call our Talkback line. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.